so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Talk to me if you can hear me, guys. I can I can hear you, but yeah. Are your headphones working yet? Not yet. Do you know the easy way to connect them to your phone? Like if you swipe down from the top right corner, it has that little like circles with a triangle at the top. Do you see that? Yeah. Hold, hold, hold on. Hello? Hey, Lindsay. Can y'all hear me? I can hear you, Lindsay. I'm not sure if you can hear Wait, me. Wait, but you... Okay, y'all just sounded like chipmunks. Okay, what do you sound better okay. now? Okay, now I can hear you. Okay, well, you don't sound like a yeah, chipmunk. Yeah, what just happened? <clears throat> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and not with me in the studio today, but joining us uh, via internet are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everyone. And Brent Leatherwood. Hello from the world of isolation. No kidding. We'll talk all about that as we get into this episode. And later in this episode, we're also going to be talking to a special guest today, Dr. Randy Davis, who's the executive director of the Tennessee Baptist Convention. But before we get to that, I just want to say thank you. Uh, last week, we talked about on the podcast, it was week eight, and we made it past kind of our trial run phase of the relaunch podcast and uh, made a special appeal uh, to to you guys to leave us some uh, ratings and reviews and you really did. We were just overwhelmed with uh, the comments that came in and the, the fact that you left those ratings and reviews. So we just want to say thank you. And if you left us a rating in your podcast app uh, last week, or if you want to go ahead and do it this week, if you'll just uh, take a screenshot of that and email it to us at info at ERLC.com, we would love to uh, just send you a gift to just say uh, thanks so much for supporting the podcast. And uh, if you haven't done that yet, you know we would still very much appreciate it if you take the time to do that. Well, guys... It has been a tumultuous and absolutely crazy week. And so I'm looking forward to getting into all of that as we talk about this today. But Lindsay, as we get started, let's go ahead and just talk about what is what did the ERLC focus on this week? Okay, guys, I'm coming to you from my bedroom closet because Gary said to get into the quietest place possible, but thankfully there's a window in here. Um, so obviously we're going to be talking about coronavirus because that has been on the move lately. But... Um, I wanted to highlight a few other pieces that don't have to do with the coronavirus, um, just so we can remind ourselves of other things going on in the world and in the culture. So we have a piece by Courtney Reisig on our site that's titled, Understanding How Men and Women Approach Parenting and Work, A New Study Reveals Many Women Prefer Working Part-Time. So Courtney says this, what this study does is provide us with the freedom to divide care and work according to what works for our family, while also showing us that mothers and fathers care both about the home and the marketplace. So Courtney's article just highlights that 
as Christians, we need to give one another the freedom to make decisions that work out best for their family so that they can honor Christ in the specific roles that he's called them to. I think that's really good. And that's something that is definitely needed. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a lot of conversations happening, uh, especially with folks who were thinking about going into ministry about what the family is supposed to look like in terms of is the is the husband supposed to work and the mother and the wife supposed to stay home with the kids? Is she supposed to work part-time? Is it good for both of them, like to be for them to be a dual income household? And, you know, ultimately what came out of those discussions was kind of a consensus that it's going to look different from family to family. And so I think that's really what, what Courtney shows us as she kind of walks through this study. Lindsay, as a working mom yourself, did you find that statistic surprising that a number of mothers would actually prefer to work part-time? Yeah, I think maybe what I found surprising was that they would prefer to work part-time rather than full-time. Because we live in a world that it seems to encourage most women to put off getting married and having children and just pursuing their careers. So this is showing that women do, by and large, want families, if that's what God provides. They want to invest in the home, in their marriage, and their children, but they also want the freedom to be able to work in a way that is outside the home as well. So next up, we have Neil Hardin, who's our channel editor for News and Culture. He's written an explainer about BYU and how Brigham Young University has removed a section from their honor code about homosexual behavior. What Neil says about it is this, the cultural pressure to change stances on the vast array of LGBTQ issues is being brought to bear on every Christian institution and it won't stop. Because of this, Christians need to know how to think through these issues well. Neil is not saying that BYU is a Christian institution, far from that. What he's saying is Christian institutions are faced with some of these same decisions that BYU and other places have been faced with. Yeah, and this has been like a a major subject of controversy. Uh, Obviously, BYU historically has uh, held to a sexual ethic that does not uh, subscribe to or support uh, same-sex relationships. And so when students saw the the administration seeming to make this move, there was a lot of support for that among students who were, you know, pro-LGBTQ. But ultimately, what they clarified was that the university was not actually seeking to take any steps to change their historic position on human sexuality, and that they they certainly weren't intending to clear the way for same-sex relationships to be appropriate or normalized on, on the campus. More than likely, this won't be the the last piece that is written on this, uh, because this seems to be a unfolding conversation uh, over at the BYU campus and in Utah. Absolutely. Okay, and next up we have uh, Lindsay Teat with an article titled How Meeting Practical Needs Helps Vulnerable Families, a Family Restoration Success Story. And what this article highlights is the need for Christians to be involved in foster care and the importance of not just fostering children, but seeking to invest in their families so that these families can be restored. So Lindsay walks through an example in her own family's life and talks about a ministry through Lifeline Children's Services that her family has been involved in. And she just highlights what a beautiful picture it is when a vulnerable family has someone step in to help and then sees the Lord work in their lives and reunites mothers and fathers with their children. And then finally, our president, Russell Moore, put up an article yesterday on his site titled, Don't Quarantine the Great Commission. And Josh, you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, uh, 
as everyone knows, and we're about to talk about even more, uh, with all of the coronavirus stories going on and as the disease or as the viruses continue to to spread across the country and all kinds of preventative measures are being taken, churches are really being caught in the crosshairs here, trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. And so uh, Dr. Moore offered this word to pastors. It was kind of precipitated by comments that the governor of Kentucky made earlier this week when he encourage churches as early as this weekend to begin just suspending their services, or in other words, not meeting at all. Pastors were immediately reaching out to us, ministry leaders in Kentucky and elsewhere, saying, hey, wh- what do we do? What, what happens if we're under one of these uh, advisories, or if the, the state or uh, local officials are encouraging us not to meet? What should we do? And so Dr. Moore laid out this practical series of steps for churches in terms of things they can take to continue to do the critical function of the church, the gathering together of the body for the sake of instruction and for worship and for edification. And so uh, that's what's in this article uh, aptly titled, uh, Don't Quarantine the Great Commission. So I would encourage you to take a second and check that out. Okay, so that's what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And so, Brent, we're going to go ahead and turn it over to you. And man, I just want to say good luck because there is so much going on in the world of culture this week. So why don't you, uh, why don't you just take us there and tell us what's happening? <laughs> well, probably several folks are wondering why I said earlier, hello from isolation. Um, As we've seen in large parts of the country, folks are taking sometimes uh, preventative measures other times because maybe they have had a positive test result from coronavirus. So for our family, it's actually the the former. We're here in a preventative case and precautionary uh, because there was a positive test result at our children's school. And so just out of an abundance of caution uh, to make sure that neither our children nor my wife and I have it, we've decided to work from home for the, the next few days. And so I think our colleagues at the RLC are probably thankful for that. I'll just say that I'm thankful we for that. Are, <laughs> yes, we are thankful. I just decided to work from my closet just in case you came into work, Brent. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you, you wanted multiple degrees of, of separation. But, separation, uh, No, seriously, yes. th- this is, uh, this is uh, affecting workplaces across the country as testing has ramped up with coronavirus. So the the president was on the television announcing earlier this week that testing would be ramping up. There's a number of private vendors that are setting up testing centers across the country. And that is probably something that is happening in the backyards of many of our friends who are are listening right now. Yeah. And I think that by now it's becoming evident. I mean, we've it almost is surreal that we've talked about the coronavirus on literally every episode of this podcast since we relaunched it, but uh, it is it is just becoming more and more of a reality. And as we're seeing uh, major things happen uh, all across our culture, one of the things that's clear is that, you know, as Christians, like we are, we are praying for this uh, pandemic to come to an end because uh, it is, is not it's not helpful to see the way that some in the in the media have turned this into a kind of partisan thing. It is not. This is not a partisan issue. This is a people issue, and it is affecting people all across the country. So, you know, I'm encouraged to see that these tests are ramping up. I am hopeful to see that more testing hopefully will will lead to more prevention and hopefully a quick end to this growing outbreak. That's right. And you you mentioned in your comments just then, Josh, uh, that this is a pandemic. So earlier this week, the World Health Organization officially declared that coronavirus is a worldwide pandemic, and that triggers some national entities, that triggers some legal language for contracts. Uh, It's actually a very important designation. Unfortunately, it is uh, 
it's sad that this step had to be taken by the World Health Organization. Right, Brent. And that pandemic sounds like a scary word. And in some senses it is. It means worldwide, global. And us as believers, though, I think we need to be careful and we need to be intentional about not giving into and communicating fear. We need to remind our brothers and sisters, we need to remind the world of where our hope is and it's in Christ. We need to live lives that are wise and smart, but that seek to love our neighbor. And so I just, it, this is just a perfect opportunity for us to witness to the peace and the rest that we find in Christ in the midst of a fallen and tumultuous world. I think that's such a good point, Lindsay. And the reason is that, you know, one of the things that I have been just made more and more aware of as we've watched uh, these cancellations happen, as we have seen more and more people displaced or students displaced by the, the spread of the virus, is the fact that, you know, this is affecting tons and tons of real people, many of whom don't have, you know, the luxury, you know, Brent and Lindsay, you both mentioned uh, working from home today. You know, there are many people that that's not an option for them, or there are many people that it, they, they know they're, they're paid hourly. And if they don't go to work, uh, they might struggle to feed their families. So they're trying to make really difficult choices uh, or being forced into hard situations right now. And so that's something that we need to be especially mindful of. I've seen a lot of both churches and businesses and uh, just individuals pledge or promise to do all that they can to try to, to try to support people who are finding themselves in those kinds of situations right now. And I think that as Christians, we want to do everything we can to support and love our neighbors in this moment. That's right, Josh. And you mentioned that there are uh, a number of cancellations. So the world was shocked when uh, the NBA suddenly, in the middle of the week, uh, decided to postpone the remainder of the regular season for the National Basketball Association. And similarly, conference tournaments are going on right now uh, for the NCAA, and a number of them have been canceled as well. The Houston Rodeo, which is a big event in Texas, has been canceled. Not to mention earlier this week, we heard about Coachella and South by Southwest, two major cultural events that happened in Texas and California. So this is certainly impacting far beyond just individual health. I mean, industries are grinding to a halt in response to the virus outbreak. Yeah, for, for many, many people. And if we look at things kind of soberly, what we see is that it's a frightening time, uh, not just in American life, but across the world. And so as we are, you know, as we are grappling with this and as we're facing this crisis, uh, I, I just want to pivot back to uh, the words that Dr. Moore used in his in his piece that he put up about the fact that what we're doing is, as Christians, we are, you know, we, we want to take whatever adequate or whatever steps are necessary to try to mitigate risk, to try to respond uh, appropriately, but we don't do that with a spirit of fear. We do that because as Christians, we are, uh, we are those who have put our faith and confidence in the one who has overcome death and overcome the grave. And so for believers, as we are facing even this very, very grave uh, set of circumstances, and as dire as things may look, we need to keep our eyes and our focus on Jesus, even as we march through this and try to care for other people. That's absolutely right. A lot of times I, when I'm struggling with fear or just struggling to cling to the Lord in scary times, it's good for me to read Christian biographies or to go up and go and look up stories about um, how different believers have responded in trying times. And so that just might be a good idea, you know, go, go read Fox's book of martyrs. Not that this is a time of martyrdom, but this is, this is a time to look at how believers have 
stood faithful to Christ and ministered to their neighbors in the midst of situations that we can't even imagine. Their stories strengthen your faith in the midst of these uncertain times. That's a great word, friend, and you're absolutely right. We should be able to see that Christians have overcome trials before, and uh, that should give us hope and faith, in addition to just reading the word. So we've mentioned a couple times here that testing capability for coronavirus is, is going to be ramping up across the country. Why is that important? Well, all we need to do is look to uh, our friends in South Korea. They have turned the corner on cases there, and the reason being because they instituted an aggressive testing regimen that allowed them to actually see where the hotspots for the cases were in their country, and we think we'll see similar results here. But while coronavirus has certainly soaked up a, a lot of the oxygen in terms of news, there's a lot of other news happening. And so let's get to that real quickly. Internationally, the Russian government passed an amendment to extend Russian President Vladimir Putin's rule to 2036. So constitutionally, he was actually supposed to end his time in office here in the next few years. They have now passed a constitutional amendment that would allow him to extend that further. Russian voters will have a chance to either ratify or decline that amendment later this year. Speaking of dictators we need to be keeping an eye on is North Korea, where Kim Jong-un this week launched three projectiles into the neighboring ocean. That attracted the attention of a lot of the analysts on the international scene because, once again, North Korea seems to be uh, shouting for attention as America is dealing with its own circumstances. Yeah, and that's been a thing that we've been watching for quite some time. Uh, the throughout, at least throughout the time of the Trump administration, we've been keeping a close eye on tensions uh, related to North Korea and their pursuit of uh, nuclear weapons. And this is an incredibly uh, volatile leader of a, a dangerous foreign government. Right. And we need to be paying attention to these folks, even as we are watching the coronavirus moment unfold, because it is a moment where antagonists might seek to undermine us in certain ways. Here at home this week on Tuesday, we saw Mini Tuesday or Super Tuesday 2, as some folks were calling it. Vice, former Vice President Joe Biden came out the clear winner across the uh, multiple states that were participating, which was something that surprised a lot of folks. A lot of eyes were on Michigan, where uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was trying to duplicate his success from the 2016 primary election. That did not happen. So for a lot of folks, Vice President Joe Biden is in the front runner seat, if not almost the presumptive nominee for the Democratic nomination. Yeah, it just seems really unlikely at this point that there's any real possibility, uh, barring some, you know, some really unforeseeable circumstances for Bernie Sanders to be able to catch up uh, with Joe Biden in the, you know, in the race for the nomination. That's right. Meanwhile, this week, justice was done on the sexual abuse front. Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood mogul producer he received 23 years in prison for sexually abusing women. This was a case that a lot of people were paying attention to uh, across the country. And finally, it seems like justice has been done here. He was really the one who uh, is at the center of the Me Too movement. And so uh, we have been watching for weeks as they have been attempting to uh, bring criminal charges against him and, and have those stick because uh, there were just so many, I'll call them just credible reports uh, from women that he has uh, abused and, and criminally mistreated 
uh, across, you know, multiple decades. To see that this week for a lot of people, like you said, Brent, it just, it, it was a, a sense of justice being done. And so, uh, you know, the issue, uh, issues related to the Me Too movement and sexual abuse have been something that at the ERLC we've been focused on intently, uh, especially over the last year. Yeah, and the Me Too movement led to the Church Too movement. It uh, highlighted sexual abuse, the tragedy of sexual abuse, and caused churches to take a look at what was going on, not just out there in culture, but what was going on inside uh, our churches and in the name of Christ, which is just wicked. And so um, the ERLC has been highlighting that. We did a conference called Caring Well, uh, where we sought to highlight what churches and organizations can do to protect the people in their pews and how to care well for those who have been abused. We, uh, along with Lifeway and BNH, put together a curriculum called uh, Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. You can go to our site, ERLC.com, and look those things up and find those resources. But we are putting all of our efforts into this because we want to see the church as a safe place for people and for the vulnerable where they are not afraid of being abused, but instead where they know that they are going to be safe and protected from abuse and um, shepherded well in Christ's name. And another issue that we care about is the institution of marriage at the RLC. So there was a concerning report out of the Wall Street Journal this week about more affluent Americans are saying I do, while less uh, members of our kind of blue collar and working class. So from the article, it says middle class Americans are forsaking marriage amid financial insecurity, effectively making the institution more of a luxury good enjoyed by prosperous Americans. Obviously, that's not what God intended for marriage, and this is a concerning report for us. Well, and it makes me wonder, and I'm interested to know if y'all could weigh in on it, why is it that we wait for financial security to get married? You know, we talk all the time. I, I personally, I talk all the time to young couples who are who are dating, who are in college, or maybe just out of college, and they're they're thinking about marriage, where they have all kinds of you know concerns or trepidation or whatever about taking that step because they think that oh well, I need to be financially secure. Or I need to uh, have taken this step or establish myself in this way before I'll be ready to get married. And as a person who got married when I was really young, I understand a lot of the the fears and concerns that are wrapped up into that, but. Marriage, for all of its complexity, one of the things that I would really encourage people out there who are who are grappling with that or are concerned about, oh, well, we don't know if we're ready to take that step, uh, what, what I would tell you is that you're never going to be ready. And we, Dr. Moore says that all the time, uh, that, that you're never going to have everything in place. You're never going to have your whole life together, all the pieces in place in order to feel ready to get married. Because only marriage can teach you how to be married and how to thrive inside of marriage. And so a lot of times uh, those fears, while understandable, they're just simply not well-founded. That's absolutely right. And what I would say is while this report is um, certainly provocative for those of us who are working to protect the institution of marriage, at the end of the day, as Christians, we need to back out from letting culture define it along economic terms, and we need to see the spiritual benefits, That's right. uh, how it helps us in our walk with Christ, how we can help point our potential spouse, or then after we get married, our, our actual spouse, towards Christ uh, with one another. And so that's what God intended marriage for, and we honestly don't even need to think about the economic component as Christ followers. Elsewhere, with all these sports and sports tournaments being canceled right now, we just learned as we were coming on the air that Major League Baseball has suspended all operations. For at least right now, SEC football is back. Spring practice 
began this week on the 14 campuses that comprise the Southeastern conferences. I know colleges across the country are doing spring football practice. That's, that's something we need sports right now. Uh, we need opportunities to just divert away from coronavirus news and uh, hopefully spring football will give us a little bit of that because it, it doesn't attract uh, a lot of big crowds. It's just uh, practice, but it's something. Go Gators. Man. <laughs> As a non-SEC person, uh, I'm pretty devastated because I just found out that, you know, all of ACC sports have been suspended for now. So I hope that you guys recognize or are able to realize these SEC dreams of being able to see, you know, spring uh, spring football beginning to uh, gear up. But for ACC fans, at least for now, uh, everything is uh, suspended and shut down across all of, all of their teams and all of their sports, including their practices. Oh, that's a, that's a downer. But... With all that said, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. Okay, so right now we're going to have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Randy Davis. Dr. Davis is the executive director of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, and he helps lead Southern Baptist in Tennessee in all of their missions efforts all across our state and across our world. And so we're excited to have a few minutes to talk to him today. So Dr. Davis, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing serving the Lord in ministry right now. Well, uh, my wife and I grew up in South Alabama, and then went to college in Mississippi and uh, did our seminary work in New Orleans pastored on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi for 17 years and came to East Tennessee in 1992, where I pastored First Baptist Church of Morristown, and then for almost a decade, First Baptist Church of Sevierville, uh, there at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. And about nine, almost 10 years ago, God led us to do something that wasn't on my bucket list. I thought I would pastor for 50 years. I made it 34 of those years. And I've been executive director for the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board now since July 1st of 2010. And um, my ministry is just helping us serve churches for the propagation of the gospel here in the great state of Tennessee. Amen. Dr. Davis, we are so thankful for you. And I think I hear a combination of Alabama, Mississippi, and New Orleans in that accent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. I appreciate that, I guess. I love I love Louisiana <laughs> oh, people good. and the kind of accent they have, so that's a high compliment. Absolutely. Well, we would love to hear from you about one thing, if you could even distill it down to that, that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry. Well, uh, that is an incredible question, Lindsay. And, you know, if you were to write a biography, the key point be looking at what God taught you at each phase of life. I think right now God is teaching me focus. I don't remember a time in my life or in ministry where there have been so many distractions. And uh, when the Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, I can understand his what he was teaching us about focus. And even the past eight days, with the tornadoes here in Tennessee and with the coronavirus and with the economy taking an enormous, almost overnight hit, we still have to be focused on the mission God's given to us in the midst of all of that. Uh, we may have to adjust ourselves, but the main thing is that if there's a hope in the midst of this storm, we know it's Jesus. We've got to encourage our churches. We've got to uh, just do all we can to let our people know that 
the Lord is on his throne, and uh, we can get through this thing, and Easter is coming. Mm. That's Amen. A, that's a great word, Dr. Davis. So, you know, this podcast, unlike our other podcasts that are more policy-oriented, we talk about culture, and you have such access to culture makers uh, around the state. So whether it's state legislative leaders, uh, uh, church leaders around the state, or even your fellow executive directors uh, around the country, I'm curious, uh, when you are interacting with those leaders, uh, what are they paying attention to right now in culture? Well, there's a couple of things. One has to do with how do we speak into this culture? The culture is so rapidly changed over the last decade, and is so and and the change is even ramping up as far as the rapidity of uh, how how it's happening. So how do we speak truth into this culture that's all around us? When Governor Haslam was governor of Tennessee, we had him in to speak to about 25 pastors of some of our leading churches, and he made a very interesting comment. One of the pastors said, is the church still relevant in this culture? Governor Haslam, who is a strong disciple of Christ, very mature, very deep in his understanding of the word, looked a little shocked by that question. And Governor Haslam said, the church is more relevant now than at, than at any point in history. And then he said, perhaps our culture is like it is, speaking of a more of an amoral bent, because we as believers are not sharing the gospel like we did 30, 40 years ago. And what he was saying was, we just are not being the light we need to be. I think this is an exciting time to be the light and to shine so brightly. Dr. Davis, that's such a good reminder and a good call to Christians, especially in this time of turmoil. Um, You mentioned your work as executive director of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, and we know how vital your work is representing our churches in Tennessee. Would you give our audience a better sense of what state conventions do on behalf of Southern Baptists? Well, I think that, uh, you know, what we do, we view ourselves as a mission organization created by Tennessee Baptists to serve Tennessee Baptist churches. We are Christ-centered, field-focused. The things that we value are relationships and innovation and stewardship and excellence. But the bottom line is we, we serve churches. Here's where I think we serve Southern Baptist in a number of ways. We have a, an audacious goal of seeing a thousand new churches started in the next 10 years in the state of Tennessee. The state of Tennessee is growing by 500 to 600,000 people every 10 years. That's like picking up another city like Memphis. As New England is now, that's the direction we're going as far as our Christianity um, being impactful on our culture unless we have some major changes even in the South. the you, you stand on any bridge around the Boston area and look over the skyline, and you'll see church steeple after church steeple. But in those churches now are Starbucks and antique stores and restaurants and pubs. New England was the hotbed of uh, Great Awakenings. It was the place where some of the greatest missionary ascending societies were birthed. That was New England. And the South is now has that mantle. But if our churches continue to decline, 
if the gap between those that know the Lord and do not know the Lord in the South continues to grow, then we're going to find that we will become New England-like. And when that happens, uh, it will dry up the financial funnel of the Southern Baptist Convention. So state conventions, especially in the South, have a responsibility to do all we can to help our churches be healthy, see that uh, they're wise in their stewardship, promote our missions offering and the cooperative program to see them growing. Um, Here's the connection. I love what David Platt said, and I think this will, for me, this is David Platt's legacy as a Southern Baptist leader. He talked about a growing appreciation for the Southern Baptist ecosystem. There's a young man that gets saved at a Baptist camp that's supported by a state convention. He goes to a university that has a campus ministry supported by a state convention, and he gets his uh, he he's called into missions after he goes on his first mission trip with that BCM. He goes to a Southern Baptist seminary to uh, become well equipped for the mission field, and then he goes on the mission field. All along the way, at each one of those touches, there is a cooperative program dollar supporting him. And that's why it's important that this 95-year-old mechanism to support Great Commission work is not diminished, but it is enhanced. We serve churches in state convention as we serve them and help them grow and become stronger as we look at our states as a mission field and attempt to win these states to Christ help our churches doing that, we plant churches, revitalize churches, then um, all we're doing in this Southern Baptist ecosystem is supported and helped. That is such a good and convicting reminder about kind of the future for us and what's at stake if we do not be uh, great commissioners. So thank you for that reminder, Dr. Davis. One of the things you touched on briefly was uh, disaster relief. And obviously, Tennessee saw a lot of devastation here recently with tornadoes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that function works? Because it's such a vital part of what our state conventions do. Well, I appreciate that. It begins with uh, doing some excellent training. The training that takes place, we've got uh, right in the center of where some of the most devastating tornado activity was. We've got two training events happening this weekend. We send out people that evaluate the damage that's done. This is practically speaking, and that they will bring back work orders, and then we send out teams, whether it's to put blue tarps on roofs or whether it's to get a tree off a house with a chainsaw crew, whether it's chaplains walking through a neighborhood and, and inter- encountering people that are dazed by the destruction they've seen. And uh, they give to them biblical counseling and an opportunity to introduce Jesus to them. Disaster relief helps in a multitude of ways. And so we just we just praise the Lord for that. But disaster relief, uh, contacting your church, contacting your association or state convention, and say, hey, how can we be trained? We will. Not everyone has to be trained. Uh, we take what we call spontaneous untrained volunteers, and we'll put them in groups of trained people to go out and help out. 
With Dr. Davis, before I moved out to Tennessee, I lived in eastern North Carolina, and my hometown was affected uh, in a significant way twice in my life by uh, major hurricanes and devastating flooding that was going on there. And and so I know just firsthand uh, the kind of benefit that uh, these Baptist disaster relief uh, response workers that, that they bring to a community. And so we just want to say thank you. Some friends of ours uh, were contacted uh, by the uh, Tennessee Baptist the, the morning that this happened, uh, that the tornadoes, the morning after, uh, they were contacted immediately saying, what, what do you need? How can we serve you? And so it is, it's been you know, amazing to see. It's been overwhelming. And so we want to say thank you for, uh, for your leadership, for your organization, and for all that you do, not only to serve the body of Christ in Tennessee, but to serve the people of Tennessee and beyond. So we're just so grateful that you took the time to spend a few minutes with us today. Well, Josh and Lindsay and Brent, uh, again, I'm very, very honored to allow me a part of this podcast. Thank you very much for all you're doing for the kingdom. Thank you, Dr. David. This episode of the ERLC podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With by Sam Alberry, the latest from the best-selling Oxford Apologetics series. Christians are increasingly seen as outdated, restrictive, and judgmental when it comes to sex before marriage, cohabitation, and homosexuality. Sam Alberry sets out God's good design for the expression of human sexuality. This book is ideal for giving away to people who see this as one of the biggest barriers for considering Christianity. Find out more about Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With at thegoodbook.com. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we share with you the things that we've been talking about together. Normally at the ERLC for us, our best conversations happen when we sit down together at The Lunchroom to uh, discuss over the table the things that are on our minds. So Brent, what are you bringing to the table this week? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, our family this week, we are in a bit of isolation. And I was just thinking through what are some of the things I love to do when I'm at home. And I love to read books. So I thought of this week a great resource for folks who may find themselves at home, either just for a staycation or because they are quarantined. A great resource is thriftbooks.com. Now, a number of folks who might be Amazon Prime uh, participants, they might say, oh, no, I get great deals on books. But if you're like our family and you're not uh, taking part in Amazon Prime, thriftbooks.com is a, is a great resource because you can order books at really cheap rates and they get to your door in just a couple days. So we thought maybe in this season, this would be a great resource to share. I love thrift books, Brent, and use it often. I just want to say you better Clorox wipe your book once you receive it. Well, now that's probably good advice going forward. <laughs> Brent, are you the last person in uh, Nashville to not use Amazon Prime? <laughs> Perhaps. I, I might be the last person in all of the evangelical <laughs> world. Uh, right. But that's okay because we, we found uh, alternatives. That's right. Just teasing you, Brent. Well, I wanted to, number one, give a report for my lunchroom segment. Last week, I recommended some toothpaste, which is the weirdest lunchroom segment ever. It was my favorite of all time it. so far. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, so anyway, go ahead. Well, I've been using it and I'm here to report that though it takes a little bit to get used to because it tastes like peroxide and baking soda, you know, there are less stains on my teeth. So I'm just saying. Also, we may need to make an amendment and have the lunchroom segment changed into the chat room segment if we're going to be apart from each other for yeah, a long no time. Yeah, no kidding. 
So I saw this funny joke on Twitter, just a moment of levity in the midst of all of the turmoil. And it said, the World Health Organization has announced that dogs cannot contract COVID-19. So they were worried that maybe animals could. And it says, dogs previously held in quarantine can now be released. To be clear, who let the dogs out? Who let the dogs out? Woof, 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 woof. Man. I can't get over how much I love that. That is just so yeah. funny. Yeah. I mean, man's, man's best friend has been let out of the kennel court. I mean, there was a perfect joke set up. It's awesome. Who let the dogs out? No kidding. Well, yeah, from, and to be clear, who who is the acronym for World Health Organization? World Health Organization. Yes, thank you. Right. Yes. And so uh, we will link to that in the show notes, and you can feel free to share that with all of your friends. Uh, for my uh, lunchroom this week, I actually have two things. So the first one is kind of serious and helpful. I just finished reading a book by Stephen Smith called Pagans and Christians in the City, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac. And it is just a fascinating look at uh, the culture wars about Christians as they were a, you know, a persecuted small minority in the Roman Empire, how they rose to uh, absolute cultural dominance in the Western world, and then about the resurgence of what Stephen Smith calls paganism, but this kind of anti-Christian or secularism uh, that that we see now in the modern day. So it's a really, really fascinating book. I, I tremendously enjoyed it, and I want to commend it to you. But beyond that, because, you know, it has been such a chaotic and tumultuous week, there was just one thing that I saw that I just couldn't stop thinking about, and I wanted to share it with all of you. So apparently there's this show, and it's called The Masked Singer, and I've only seen a couple clips of this floating around. I've never watched any episodes, but last night I saw a clip floating around on the internet of former vice presidential candidate and former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, and she was on stage rapping, and it was just amazing. It was just hilarious. Yeah, but she was rapping on stage wearing some sort of incredibly ridiculous outfit. That's right. It was just one of those things that in the midst of this chaotic craziness uh, was just a moment of levity, and it was really worth it. So uh, She looked like a giant pink telepuppy. That's (laughs) Yeah, everyone on the Masked Singer dresses up weird, just so you know. Yeah, well, there you go. So before we end today's podcast, we wanted to uh, end by looking into basically the ERLC's mailbag. Every single week, we get questions coming in uh, from people all across the country with questions about family, life, ethics, religious liberty, faith. And so we thought it'd be helpful if we shared some of those things with you and discuss them together. So Lindsay, why don't you tell us what the question is for today? Okay, guys. So the question we received today is, is it okay for a husband and wife to be celibate within marriage? To put it simply, the answer is no. Like, it's not okay for a husband and wife to be celibate totally. And so this comes to us not just as some kind of word from Josh, but as a word directly from Scripture. I mean, the Apostle Paul literally says, as he's speaking to husbands and wives in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you. And the spirit of that is that Paul is affirming that this is something that sex within marriage is something that God has created, that he's instituted for our good. It, it is meant to be something that, you know, obviously is procreative and leads to to children and furthers families and, and ultimately humanity. But this is this is something that is a good thing that God has created that is meant for husbands and wives to enjoy together. And it is indispensable to a healthy marriage. And so, you know, perhaps as, as Paul says, you know, perhaps for a time there, there may be some reason to do that. But in general, throughout 
uh, the course of your marriage, it is, it is not a legitimate option for Christians to be celibate. That's right. And for that limited time that, that Paul is specifically talking about there, that could cover any number of issues that maybe folks encounter in their marriage. So uh, whether there's extenuating circumstances, whether there's a distance, whether there are uh, medical issues at play, uh, obviously that, that covers that. But in general, um, sex was made for the one flesh union between a man and a woman, and it's something uh, to be celebrated and thankful for as Christians. So we love having the opportunity to answer questions like that and to help Christians wrestle with uh, these complex moral issues as they're seeking to live their lives faithfully in obedience to Jesus. And so if you have a question, you can always uh, email those to us at info at URLC.com. We're happy to uh, engage with you. If you have questions that we could talk about on the podcast, feel free to send those to us and we'll try to uh, get that on the show and get an answer out there because, you know, in many cases, it's it's not just you who might be wrestling with something, but it, it might be something that would be valuable to for a lot of people to to hear and to think about. And so uh, we're always happy to answer this. So thanks so much for listening. And for Brent, Lindsay, and myself, we will be back next week with more content.